This is the Dharma talk on the first day of the September 2022 uh, two-day session. And we welcome nine people for whom this is their first session. And so now I'm going to make a confession. I had a text prepared which seemed really appropriate for helping people for whom this was a a new and somewhat bizarre experience. And then when I came to, just a couple of hours ago, download the biography of the master that I was going to read from, I discovered that it's Mayazumi Roshi who founded the Los Angeles Zen Center, but I had forgotten of his somewhat, um, what would you say, unfortunate history with sexual behavior with his students, and um, I just felt I couldn't really resonate very well with the text. So there we were, (laughs) a Dharma talk with no text. So uh, I apologize if this is going to be a little ragged, um, I do remember when I was uh, acting in, in high school, and I was, of course, it was a girls' school, so you had to be play men as well as women, and I was the fourth prince, I believe. And we each had to bow as we said why we had come to claim the hand in marriage of this beautiful princess. So Prince One goes down and says his bit, Prince Two goes down and says his bit, Prince Three. Prince four then <laughs> goes down, and the mind is completely blank. So that's an experience, actually, of an empty mind, but I'm afraid it's not the empty mind that we're looking for in Zen because it's totally driven by our brain chemicals, and the amygdala fires up, and off we go. Um, fortunately, the prompter came in, and so life was saved. However, the text I'm going to use is from Master Xu Yun, who his uh, Dharma name in English is Empty Cloud. Very famous, um, and I'd like to read his biography because it uh, tells everything about his journey uh, and his predilection, actually, for for Zen and for a deep spiritual awakening. Uh, He was born in 1840, and he died in, I think, in the 50s. Uh, uh, Yes, his mother died during childbirth, and his grandmother insisted that his father then take a wife in order to continue the lineage. Uh, no, actually, it was the grandson. So it was uh, Xu Yun himself who was destined to marry, um, when he would be old enough, two women, one from one family and one from the other. His first exposure to Buddhism was during the funeral of his grandmother. And um, as those of you who have experienced loss um, of a parent or even a loved one, um, it, it shakes you to your foundation. 
regardless of whether you had a good relationship with that person or not. It's the in-your-face, actually, moment of uh, the passing of things. He began reading Buddhist sutras, and he made a pilgrimage to a Mount Heng, which was one of the most important Buddhist sites in China. And when he was 14, he announced that he wished to renounce the material world in favor of monastic life. And his father did not approve of Buddhism and had him instructed in Taoism instead. But uh, Xu Yun was dissatisfied with Taoism, which he felt could not reach the deepest truths of existence. And going through some books in his house, he found a volume called The Story of Incense Mountain, which described the life of Guan Yin, or Kanon, as we know, the Bodhisattva of compassion. And then he was totally inspired to go forth to monkhood to practice Buddhism. So when he was 17, he tried to flee to become a monk without his family's permission. But then on a winding mountain path, he encountered envoys sent by his uncle to intercept and escort him back. So he had to just stay home. And when he arrived home, the family feared that he would escape again, so he was sent with his first cousin to Guangzhou. And his father, to make matters worse, formally received the two brides that he had been promised to marry, and his marriage was completed. And this is interesting. Although they lived together, Xu Yun did not have sexual contact with his wives. Moreover, he extensively explained the Dharma to them, and they too eventually would practice Buddhism. So when he was 19, he goes to Drum Mountain, and... um, And when he was at the monastery there, his head was shaved and he received ordination as a monk. And then his father again sent agents to find him. He concealed himself in a grotto behind the monastery where he lived in solitude for three years. And at the age of 25, he learned that his father had died and his stepmother and two wives had entered the monastic life. During his years as a hermit, Xu Yun made some of his most profound discoveries. He visited the old master, Yung Ching, who encouraged him to abandon his extreme asceticism in favor of temperance. He instructed the young monk in the sutras and told him to be mindful of the wado, or the koan, who is dragging this corpse of mine. In his 36th year, with the encouragement of Yung Ching, Su Yun went on a seven-year pilgrimage to Mount Puto off the coast of Ningbo, a place regarded by Buddhists as the Bodhimanda of Kanon. Anyway, he tirelessly worked as a bodhisattva, teaching precepts, um, explaining sutras and restoring old hermits and uh, old temples. This was after he actually became the abbot of of this one temple. Of course, at this time, China was going through an enormous upheaval. 
and Xu uh, Yun stayed in China for this whole period. And in the spring of 1951, Xu Yun and his 25 monks were accused of hiding weapons and treasure. That was by the then Mao government. They were arrested and tortured in Yunmen Monastery. Some of the monks were tortured to death or suffered broken bones. Xu Yun endured several savage beatings during the interrogations, causing fractures in his ribcage. He closed his eyes and would not talk, eat, or drink, and stayed in the samadhi for nine days with his attendants, Fai Yun and Guan Chun, waiting on him. Several of his works on scriptural commentary were also destroyed. And then eventually, uh, the premier of the People's Republic of China, Zhou Enlai, managed to put an end to the abuse after three months. So this is a teacher who obviously had great aspiration, a long and complicated life, um, and stayed through this period of unrest in China. So he has a lot of... um, things going for him. Most people who come to Zen come through suffering. There's probably nobody here if you said, have you never suffered? Nobody could put up their hand. Actually, is there anybody here who hasn't suffered? I mean suffering where it really hurts. No. But that does tend to push us into into finding some answers um, and finding our way. So now for Master Xu Yun's article. Uh, actually, when we visited China, I can't remember how many years ago now, uh, in the temple that we went to, um, which is actually uh, Zhao Zhou's um, temple, there was a big photograph of... Um, empty cloud behind the altar. Uh, and it's a very um, amazing face, really. Very old, um, long, scranny beard from, um, you know, China, kind of Chinese beard. And, um, yeah, very impressive face. Sometimes a face can say a thousand words. I think Ramana Maharshi was a similar Um, presence if you saw a picture of him. So, he says, the objective of Chan practice. The objective of Chan practice is to illuminate the mind by eradicating its impurities and seeing into one's true self-nature. The mind's impurities are thoughts and attachments. Self-nature is the wisdom and virtue of the Buddha. And the wisdom and virtue of Buddhas and regular sentient beings are not different from one another. To experience this wisdom and virtue, leave behind duality, discrimination, wrong thinking, and attachment, and this is Buddhahood. If we go here to our founder of the whole Zen sect, Bodhidharma, uh, he has what he says about Buddhahood is that awareness, 
is Buddhahood. And we'll get to that in just a moment. The prerequisite for Chan practice is to eradicate thinking. Now, eradicate is a strong word, so um, in our practice what we do is to become aware of thoughting, but we don't try to suppress it or because the minute you start talking to it, there you've got your string, and then you're lost in another, uh, you know, string of thoughts. So just to not use the word eradicate is a little strong. Shakyamuni Buddha taught much on this subject. His simplest and most direct teaching is the word stop. From the expression, stopping is bodhi. From the time when Bodhidharma transmitted Chan teachings to today, the winds of Chan have blown far and wide, shaking and illuminating the world. Among the many things that Bodhidharma and the six patriarch taught to those who came to study with them, none is more valuable than the saying, put down all entangling conditions, let not one thought arise. This expression is truly the prerequisite for the practice of Zen. Now that we know this, how do we accomplish it? And that is the essence of what our practice is. We letting go of thoughts, first recognizing that what we see as our self is really just a bunch of thoughts and concepts that we've built up over time. So, Xu Yun says, all things are dreams and illusions like bubbles or reflections. Do not be captivated by the arising, abiding, changing, and passing away of illusory phenomena which give rise to pleasure and pain, grasping and rejecting. All the sensations of pain, suffering, and pleasure which attend the body, hunger, cold, satiation, warmth, glory, insult, birth and death, calamity, prosperity, good and bad luck, praise, blame, gain and loss, safety and danger, will no longer be your concern. That is what is meant by renouncing all phenomena. When all phenomena are renounced, And when thoughts no longer arise, the brightness of self-nature manifests itself completely. And this brightness of self-nature is what we call awareness. Many Chan practitioners ask questions about the teaching. The teaching that is spoken is not really the true teaching. As soon as you try to explain things, the true meaning is lost. When you realize that one mind is the Buddha, from that point on, there is nothing more to do. And then from there, I'd like to read what Bodhidharma said about Buddha. Buddha is Sanskrit for what you call aware miraculously aware, responding, perceiving, 
arching your brows, blinking your eyes, moving your hands and feet. It's all your miraculously aware nature. And this nature is the mind, and the mind is the Buddha, and the Buddha is the path, and the path is Zen. But the word Zen is one that remains a puzzle to both mortals and sages. Seeing your nature is Zen. But if you're still lost in thoughts, you won't see your nature. The way is basically perfect. It doesn't require perfecting. The way has no form or sound. It's subtle and hard to perceive. It's like when you drink water, you know how hot or cold it is, but you can't tell others. So look inward. Do it by yourself. Do not seek outside yourself for it. All sentient beings can immediately attain awareness if they wholly believe in the sincere words of the Buddha and the patriarchs. This is not a boast, nor is it a baseless, empty vow. The Buddhas and patriarchs do not deceive us. Unfortunately, we are confused and for limitless lives have experienced birth and death in the sea of suffering, appearing and disappearing, endlessly taking on new forms of life, dazed and confused, entangled in the worldly dust of the six senses with our backs to enlightenment, like pure gold in a cesspool. Because of the problem, Buddha compassionately taught 84,000 Dharma doors to accord with the varying karmic roots. Oh, this is very um, unnecessary to have so many words here, but um, it just shows the magnitude of the problem for us to return to our essential, essential awareness. Since the time when Buddha held up a flower and Bodhidharma came to the east, the methods for entry into this Dharma door have continually evolved. Most practitioners before the Tang and Sung dynasties became enlightened after hearing a word or a half sentence of the Dharma. The transmission from master to disciple was the sealing of mind with mind. There was no fixed Dharma. Everyday questions and answers only untied the bonds. It was nothing more than the right medicine for the right illness. Since the Sung dynasty, however, people did not have a good karmic roots as their predecessors. They could not carry out what had been said. They could not do, put down everything. They couldn't avoid thinking about good and evil. Under these circumstances, the patriarchs had no choice but to use poison to fight poison, so they taught the method of investigating koans. When one begins looking into a koan, one must grasp it tightly, never letting go. It is like a mouse trying to chew its way out of a coffin. It concentrates on one point. It doesn't try different places 
and it doesn't stop until it gets through. Thus, in terms of wado, or koan, the objective is to use one thought to eradicate innumerable other thoughts. So the whole objective is to somehow uh, enable us to get below thoughting. And the koan is a concentration practice that, but it could be really baba black sheep. I mean, it's not, uh, it's a method. And, um, and the inquiry in it, using it as this way of getting underneath, getting back to the awareness, that's, that's the function of it. Um, and of course, in the old days, apparently they didn't need to do that, but uh, that's certainly not true now. The ancients use koans, uh, and some of these are who is dragging this corpse around, which is what Xu Yun had. Before you were born, what was your original face? Who is reciting Buddha's name? In fact, they're all the same. There's nothing uncommon, strange, or special about them. If you wanted to, you could say, who is reciting the sutras? Who's reciting the mantras? Who's prostrating? Who's eating? Who's wearing these clothes? Who's walking? Who's sleeping? They're all the same. The answer to the question, who is derived from one's true nature? This next line is important. True nature is the origin of all words. Thoughts come out of mind. Mind is the origin of all thoughts. Innumerable dharmas generate from the mind. In other words, you start thinking and then something else comes up and something else and a story and so off we go. But, but true mind is the origin of all phenomena, all dharmas. And in fact, a koan is a thought. And before a thought arises, there is the origin of words. Hence, when you look into the koan, it is contemplating your true mind. There was true mind before your parents gave birth to you. So looking into your original face before you were born is contemplating your true nature. And true nature is mind, with a capital M. You could say true nature is awareness. Perfectly, he says here, when one turns inward to, to hear one's self-nature, interesting use of the word hear, when one turns inward to hear one's self-nature, one is turning inward to contemplate mind, with a capital M. In the phrase, perfectly illuminating pure awareness, pure awareness is mind and illumination is meditation. Investigating a koan, hence, is illuminating pure awareness. And it's also illuminating the Buddha nature within oneself. Mind is nature, pure awareness, Buddha.
Although many modern day practitioners use koans, few get enlightened. <laughs> so let's not despair here. Um, as we practice this awareness, you know, we're getting closer and closer. Uh, and even after even a small initial awakening, then there is still this continuing um, deepening of that awareness until um, we get a more understanding. Although many modern-day practitioners use koans, few get enlightened. This is because compared to practitioners of the past, practitioners today have less karmic roots. Also, practitioners today are not clear about the purpose and path of the koan. And again, this comes back to the path of the, the reason for the koan is to come to awareness, to cut off, um, cut off all this thoughting. And it's, that's what we do. It's very simple. You know, it's not a, um, something we have to really study very much. One reason is people use their intellect and, ta- and attach only to the tail of the words. But the koan is one mind. And this mind is not inside, outside, or in the middle. On the other hand, it is inside, outside, and in the middle. It is like the stillness of empty space prevailing everywhere. It should not be picked up or pressed down. If you pick it up, meaning if you start thinking about it, your mind will waver and become unstable. If you press it down, you will become drowsy. Practitioners are distressed by wandering thoughts, and they think it's difficult to tame them. Don't be afraid of wandering thoughts. Do not waste your energy trying to repress them. All you have to do is recognize them. Do not attach to wandering thoughts, do not follow them, and do not try to get rid of them. As long as you don't string thoughts together, wandering thoughts will depart by themselves. I think I'll read that again because I think it is the nub of this whole practice that we do. Practitioners are distressed by wandering thoughts. And they think it's difficult to tame them. Don't be afraid of wandering thoughts. Do not waste your energy trying to repress them. All you have to do is recognize them. Do not attach to wandering thoughts, do not follow them, and do not try to get rid of them. As long as you don't string them together, wandering thoughts will depart by themselves.
since this is a rather unprepared talk, um, I thought we would just open it up to questions people might have, answers to which may or may not be possible to give. But um, anybody got a question? Oh, okay. Okay, thank you. Nobody's awake. Everybody's asleep. Sorry, we were so boring. <laughs> oh, oh, Wayman has a question. Go ahead, Wayman. Oh, sorry. Somebody does. Bruce. Some. Uh, yes, my name is Bruce. If you could give us some pointers on. Um, how to sit with pain. It's always very challenging for you to do that. Yes. Uh, the question is, could we have could we give some pointers on how to manage pain, um, which is very challenging. Um, first of all, we resonate with you, um, Bruce. It's everybody has different degrees of pain. Um, one of the things that's really important is to make sure that your sitting posture, that you have everything you want and need to be as stable and as comfortable as you can be. This is not a practice about gritting your teeth and bearing down. We're not giving birth. Um, well, we are in one sense, but we're not giving actual birth. Um, and what you find, um, this is where really focusing on your practice, whether it's the breath or, um, or a koan. Um, if you get really deep into concentration um, and you look at the pain, instead of, you know, we want to, I think what used to happen for me and still does is I say, when will this stop? When will they ring that, that bell, you know? And so then you're now in all your hormones are ramped up for escaping this, you know, prison that you're in. And um, so trying to calm yourself down and by looking at the actual pain, you know, look at it as experience it in the moment. For some amazing reason, it really helps, but it's hard to stay with it because you want to escape it. Um, but once you actually stick with it, I think you find that it sort of can go away. In the old days of practice, you couldn't go to a chair either. But now we do have chairs, and you can always go to a chair. And rather than, you know, um, saying, I can be a warrior, I can do this, it's, it's good to take a break when you need to. And stretching and other things can help. And if all of that fails, then... You know, people, especially older people, um, will will have to take some kind of medication. You know, and that's okay too. It just may make you a little more sleepy, but it's no no shame to it. What what do you do to help you with pain? Um, it it varies. Sometimes um, I can sit with it and observe it, and and it. It doesn't make any sense, but I can I can make it evaporate 
for my for my body. Mm-hmm. Um, I could do that for a little while, and, and that's pretty amazing. Um, but um, sometimes I'm, I'm doing the gritting my teeth and um, mm-hmm. waiting, waiting, waiting for that bell to ring, <laughs> so that I can I can get yeah. up. And so um, and that creates a downward spiral. Um, as I as I've been sitting more and more. I'm, of that, but um, uh, you know, sitting with your pain is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of an abstract thought, and I don't always know how to. But actually, you're very present, you know, you're totally present when you have pain. You're in your awareness, your awareness is of pain, and so it's not that you're not practicing. I mean, I think that's the thing we get into Zen thinking always there's a goal out there. I want to get enlightened. I want to, you know, I want to have uh, a samadhi. And we're always in the future, um, but the um, living in our reality is what we really want to do. And that's what happens if you practice a long time. You start to be able to live in what is rather than what you want life to be. So I would take it as um, it'll get better. And if you practice daily, um, that will help you, you know. It's um, coming here and suddenly doing ten and a half hours a day of sitting when you've been doing maybe half an hour, um, your body is going to be very unhappy. So so I think you have your answers, actually. You're doing great. Any other questions? Can you speak to emotional pain? Specifically, yes. like, trauma-related emotional trauma. pain? Yeah. Modern. Oh, the question is: Could could we speak to emotional pain, the kind of, um, yeah, searing? Well, the question it didn't say it was searing pain, but we know that this is this is true, and this is pain that comes from one's past. And um, more and more, psychology is beginning to realize that that pain from trauma is experienced in the body. It's not, um, you can have bad thoughts about it, but it's actually experienced in the body. And um, there are some wonderful books, you know, um, The Body Keeps the Score, and so forth. I think you want to do the work that you have to do off the mat, which is, you know, therapy work, um, and just being very gentle with yourself, you know, not pushing, not pushing, um, pushing hard, but recognizing the suffering. Um, I, I, I know this a practitioner who was a was in our sangha, became a very serious uh, person, a priest, and. Um, left the Sangha eventually because they were beginning to experience a lot of emotional turmoil. And then after they left, they did some other kind of work and um, found, found some release in it. Zen can't be an answer to suppress your emotions. You, you, um, now, when you're sitting, if it's not, you don't want to bring it up if it's not there. But if it's there... Uh, then you need to make sure that you are paying attention to it. If not, if you can't put it aside while you sit, then you need to 
address it address it later it's it's a huge subject and um i think everybody who's had physical trauma or sexual trauma or um abandonment trauma uh, that that all has to be has to be folded into our uh, our reality and 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 working with it Maybe someone else has an offering on that subject. People who've dealt with trauma. Wayman. Um, maybe you said this already, and probably you did, but I, I'm not sure that I heard, it, heard you say it. But there's this famous statement by Bodhidharma, awareness is Buddha. Yeah. That's okay. But uh, that can't be overemphasized. That turning again and again to awareness rather than your thoughts, rather than your daydreams, rather than even your painful feelings. Awareness means being aware of your painful feelings. But um, I think that's a very important thing to keep in mind. Awareness is I think the other thing, actually, is though that when we realize how many of us have this trauma, you're not alone, you know? You tend to feel very alone, don't you? I mean, with trauma, you feel, you feel very alone with trauma. Um, it, it's it's um, so consuming, and so uh, it takes over your life. You're not, um, yeah, you're not free of it. So recognizing that, when we asked the question at the beginning, is there anyone here who hasn't experienced suffering? Then in this community of suffering, um, I think there's a lot of healing in that. But, um, yeah, not much to offer up. Yeah, go ahead. Might I offer something on it? Absolutely. Um, so this is coming from an acceptance and commitment therapy background that talks a lot about this essential awareness as an important part of you. And I think when we go through trauma, we think that it changes us. But this awareness cannot be damaged, altered, changed, harmed. It is the place that you experience this pain, it is a place that you experience any pain, any any part of your life, that is a place you can always go to that is not touched by it. Mm. It's standing behind the waterfall. Yeah. I think it can be helpful to remember. That's a, a very important, um, and that is when we talk about awareness, it is going back to that fundamental, unchanging, always um, present, which is really love itself. Um, it's underneath all of it. There is something that sustains us. Uh, and so 
um, as you offered, then that's where to go. That in within you, whoever survived this, whoever came to the Dharma, whoever understands it to whatever degree, that is your refuge. You have this refuge. You are the refuge. And the silence is the refuge, too. The silence in Chapin Mill, the birds, the crickets right now. We will stop here now and recite the forefathers.